eat and abide or die. Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the Sermon of Sunday, August 22nd, 2021 from Christchurch, Jerusalem. The purpose of the temple was to eat, drink, and rejoice, says Rev. David Pelegi. God builds relationship with his people through food, much as we build friendship, family, and culture around the meals we share. Food creates identity and tells us who we are. Jesus invites us to abide in him and to know and commit to him, lest we die. Friends, before we continue, we thank you for listening. As the pandemic continues, the tourists have not yet returned to Israel. Our ministry funding usually comes through the generosity of visitors to the church, guest houses, museum, and those traveling with Shoresh study tours. As we continue to pray for the end of the pandemic, we ask you to remember us in your prayers and in your charitable giving. Stay connected with us through Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and our website, ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Now, on to the lectionary readings. The first reading is from Psalm 78. Beginning to read at verse 1. My people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord his power, and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children, so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they, in turn, would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commandments. They would not be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. And now reading from verse 17. But they continued to sin against him, rebelling in the wilderness against the Most High. They willfully put God to the test by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God. They said, Can God really spread a table in the wilderness? True, he struck the rock and water gushed out. Streams flowed abundantly. But can he also give us bread? Can he supply meat for his people? When the Lord heard them, he was furious. His fire broke out against Jacob and his wrath rose against Israel. For they did not believe in God or trust in his deliverance. Yet he gave a command to the skies above and opened the doors of the heavens. He rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Human beings ate the bread of angels. He sent them all the food they could eat. 
He let loose the east wind from the heavens and by his power made the south wind blow. He rained meat down on them like dust, birds like sand on the seashore. He made them come down inside their camp, all around their tents. They ate till they were gorged. He had given them what they craved. But before they turned from what they craved, even while the food was still in their mouths, God's anger rose against them. This is the word of the Lord. The gospel reading is from John chapter 6, beginning with verse 53. Please stand as we are in the presence of the king. Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Again, Father, we pray that um, as we come and approach the teaching of your son Jesus, that his words will be for each one of us spirit and life. We ask that the Holy Spirit that gives life will apply those words to our heart. We ask that we will be blessed and encouraged, but Lord, we pray that we'll be challenged. All these things we ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Um, for those who've been regularly in the past 
four or five weeks, we um, have been encountering the challenging words and uh, example of Jesus in John uh, chapter 6. And um, these words, as we said earlier, this teaching can easily become an abstraction, doesn't mean very much to us, or the words may sound very beautiful. They may become cliches. We can talk about Jesus being the bread of life or the bread that comes down from heaven and so on. And over the past four weeks, we have gone from the feeding of the 5,000, which Jesus calls, or which the gospel calls, a sign. And you may recall, we talked about how miracles or signs in John's gospel uh, function in a different way than miracles in the book of Acts or the book of Luke. And uh, a sign, of which there are seven in the gospel, is designed to reveal to us who Jesus is. And further, not only that he is the son of God, the son of man, that he actually is divinity himself, uh, but it also reveals to us uh, something about his character and thus um, something uh, about the character of God. And uh, my favorite part of that story of the feeding of the 5,000 is how much is left over. And as we spoke about before, how God is a God of abundance. And uh, perhaps sometimes some of us have a um, hard time believing that. And that oftentimes prevents us from entering into the fullest yes, relationship uh, with his son, uh, Jesus the Messiah. In the chapters, the walking on the water, we didn't address the walking on the water. But as we went on in John 6, uh, we talked about some of John's really key um, themes, you know, themes, themes that repeat themselves over and over again. And uh, those themes were believing uh, and eternal life. And for those who weren't here the uh, past few weeks, we um, can recall in a few words, or should recall in a few words, that when John talks about believing, yes, he's talking about something more than faith um, as we know it as a noun. I have faith. Rather, he's talking about a verb. John's very Jewish in that it's the doing of the thing, yes, that defines it. Yes, the epistle of John and the gospel of John not only talk about the truth, but they talk about doing the truth. And yes, the New Testament and Paul, for example, doesn't simply talk about love. And that's what we would do in our society. Oftentimes, we're a product of a, a Western philosophical, Greek philosophical way of looking at things. And we often want to define the thing. Yes, but these ancient biblical writers, yes, wanted to define what does the thing do? What is it that faith does? Yes, so faith becomes a verb. Believing, believing into. Um, it's, and faith, as we, we saw, was, is, 
There's no was about it. It still is. It is yes, trusting and having confidence, but it's even more than that. It's being committed to the person, yes, that Jesus claims to be. And again, lots of people are committed to Jesus or say they believe in Jesus. But the question is, do they believe in Jesus that has been revealed to us through the scripture? And do they re- believe in a Jesus that is, uh, that is, is uh, revealed to us by the Holy Spirit? Or do we fall back on that old human tendency, yes, to create a God and create Jesus in our own image and one that is comfortable with our cultural surroundings. Yes, so we, it, believing in Jesus is, again, it is trusting him. It's being confident in him. But it's also being confident in the revelation, yes, that uh, God um, makes, makes through him. And finally, it's being committed to a person. Yes, it's not simply believing he is, yes, but believing is indeed part of uh, a commitment, and a commitment, <clears throat> a commitment to a person. And that, therefore, we can't separate, in this gospel at least, what we call faith and works. Yes, because we read in the chapter that the work of God, the work of God in John 6 is to believe uh, in him who was sent. And finally, in our, in our brief review, eternal life. Yes, eternal life is not exactly the same as everlasting life. They overlap. Eternal life is, yes, is experiencing divine life in the present. It's being invited in, being invited in to participate or to join in the life that the Father has with the Son and has with the Spirit. And so we will share um, in that. And of course, as we approach our death, uh, or we pass from this world to the next, uh, eternal life continues. And eternal life then becomes uh, everlasting life. So all of these things are important because now we come to the portion, we come, you might say, to the summary of all that we've discussed before. And that summary, uh, as we discussed last week, can be quite shocking. Yes, and we talked about the place of, of the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist a little bit. I got some pushback, which I thought was very good and very healthy. But uh, let's uh, continue. And let's start, I'm going to start in verse 52. The Jews began to argue amongst themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? You may remember we talked about the, the Greek meaning of the word eat. Uh, this is not the, you know, slowly slurping your soup or sipping your soup, right? Eating here is a kind of an ugly word that means to, to eat aggressively with your mouth open and to make noise in the process. And, of course, we mentioned that Jesus most likely or the or the, the gospel writer uses his word so there can be no mistake about the nature of what Jesus is talking about. And so people ask, how can this man give us flesh to eat? And Jesus tell, says the following, I tell you the truth, unless you eat my flesh, eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. Yes. Um, 
you have no life in you. And again, Jesus is talking about eternal life, not physical life. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. And so here, associated with a meal or what's eating, yes, we have... um, so we have these. We have these three things: um, eternal life, yes, being raised up on the last day, and this idea or this kind of radical concept of abiding, of remaining, of staying. Yes, eating the flesh and drinking the blood is a way of staying in Jesus and Jesus staying in us. And it's in this context, yes, that we also get the story of Judas. And uh, Judas becomes a boged. Yes, a boged is a traitor. He's going to betray Jesus. And we all think, and it's partially true, that the betrayal of Jesus is just that he hands Jesus over, yes, to the high priests, which hand them over to the Romans. And um, that's, you might say, the, the surface or the tip of an iceberg. The betrayal, Judah, the, the betrayal that Judas exhibits in this passage is that he doesn't believe. Yes, Judas doesn't, he refuses to come into relationship. He refuses to abide, and that leads to this act of betrayal. Right? It's going to lead to, to um, sin. It's, this is an aside, but it's an interesting aside. I, I, I like asides. It's why my sermons are usually 42 points or more. But um, the word uh, boged in Hebrew, which is a traitor, uh, is related to the word beged, which is clothing, or begadim, yes? And uh, where does clothing come in? Yes, clothing comes in when Adam and Eve, they have to wear clothes, yes, because they betrayed, because they sinned against, right? Uh, and of course, refusing to believe, yes, refusing to come into relationship is a sin, and that's judgment. Yes, for John, we don't have a last judgment in this book. We, we do in Matthew and Mark and Luke and 1 Corinthians in the book of Revelation. And I'm not saying there isn't going to be a last judgment. There is going to be a last judgment. Back in the men's group a few days ago, we spent 20 or 30 minutes talking about the last judgment. I think all of us were terrified, weren't we, Roger? We were on our knees and repenting, and <clears throat> there is a last judgment. But for John, yes, there's a reality that is not only, that judgment isn't only in the future, but that judgment is here and now. Those who refuse to believe, those who spurn relationship, those who don't really want to abide, and abiding becomes the key here, yes, this is an act of betrayal. And this is an act of judgment. And Judas, isn't it interesting? Here Jesus is 
talking about a meal. Yes, uh, at least I believe it's talking about a meal. Uh, some people may disagree. And where does Judas do his actual, where does the actual act of betrayal occur? At a meal, right? Judas walks out of the so-called Last Supper. He walks out of the Passover meal, yes, of, uh, of Jesus, and goes and betrays. Um, Peter also betrays, but um, Peter and Jesus are reconciled over a meal. Um, and interestingly, in Luke's gospel, it says Jesus is saying, this is my body, this is my blood. Uh, then it mentions that uh, Judas walks out. Yes, Judas betrays. And he betrays in this context of eating. He betrays in the context uh, uh, certainly of a meal. And so when we want to sometimes suggest that uh, one of the most important ways, not the only way, of abiding, yes, of being in Christ or being in Jesus and having Jesus be in us and having Jesus bring us into relationship with the Father, and all of this happens through the Holy Spirit, which is the, the one that gives life. When we say this, and when we say that the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist is one, but not the only way, yes, in which abiding occurs, then people become quite um, vociferous. And as we mentioned last week, Sometimes we let our dispute, our disagreements with the Roman Catholic Church get in the way. We have to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I think the first thing I'd like to mention, yes, that when we come to talk about abiding, is the importance that food, yes, that food plays, you know, in... Um, that food plays in the scripture. Um, you know, the idea that we have, um, that there is foodless worship <coughs> is unthinkable in the Bible. And many churches say, who say we're biblical, we're, we're, we're just following the Bible, which may have communion only once a week, not, not once a week, once a month or once a quarter or something. I'm not sure they're being actually very biblical. Because if you think about it, yes, food from the beginning is essential in our, the way that we relate and connect with God. There was, of course, Eve's disobedience occurred, you know, because of food. And there is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes, and we see that they are sacrificing um, we have a temple, first a tabernacle and a temple, in which sacrifices are offered. And it's when Israel would give gifts to God, yes, when they would give a korban in Hebrew, then God would draw karov, God would draw close, right? It's in the giving, in the giving of food that, that God himself draws close. And if we want to read Deuteronomy 12 or Deuteronomy 14, yes, what do we find? What is the purpose of the temple? And this might be a little shocking. Purpose of the temple is to eat, to drink, and to rejoice. To eat, 
to drink and to rejoice. And of course, in the book, in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 44, it calls the altar of the Lord, it calls it a table, right? So all of this uh, is, you might say, interchangeable. And if someone objects to say, well, I can't see that having, you know, doing food or having something with bread and wine could be spiritual, it only has to be symbolic. Then I think we're making a very basic mistake. And we misunderstand what it means, what a symbol means. Yes? You can have a wedding ring. Yes? And wear a wedding ring. But a wedding ring isn't just a ring. What stands behind a wedding ring? A reality. What is that reality? Yes, that a man and a woman have made a covenant together and that they're going to be faithful together. Yes, and that they're going to spend a lifetime together. Yes, a wedding ring isn't, it is a symbol. And so too is the Eucharist. It's a symbol. But behind the symbol, yes, there is a deeper, deeper reality. And for us, yes, and the understanding of Christians from most Christians for 2,000 years, is that when we come to the Lord's table in the right manner, after examining ourselves, we encounter the presence of the Lord. I'm not saying we, that we don't need Jesus, we don't need his arm, we don't need his leg. We're not uh, gnawing on his fingernails. Yes, it's not a corporal understanding or not a phys, you know, understanding uh, on that day. Yes, but coming, again, coming to the Lord's table in, in the right way is a key, I think, key and very, very important. Now, I don't want to say, again, I want to emphasize it's not the only way uh, we abide. Yes, um, you know, First John tells us that we abide, yes, uh, those who obey his commandments live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. And I know that there's a huge amount of abuse of the Lord's Supper. People who live in sin will run up to the Lord's table and take communion and, and they think it's going to make everything okay. And of course, uh, that's the, the wrong attitude. And certainly 1 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians chapter 11 Paul warns us that if we do such a thing, we could end up sick or we can end up in the grave. Yes, that you can't abuse the Lord's table. So it is not some form of magic. But again, yes, the reason that it's the center, you might say, or the apex uh, of our time of worship uh, is because of the, you know, because the centrality is because it's uh, importance. Obeying the Lord's commandments, that's why we emphasize Scripture. Yes, we, we emphasize Scripture and the teaching of the Word of God, but also equally important uh, is His table. And I think there's some other things that we have to recognize about the Lord's table, right? Because if we want to talk about abiding, yes, uh, if, if we want to put abiding in modern, you know, neurological, psychological terms, we'd have to talk about being attached to someone. Yes, being attached. 
Um, and how is it that people, <clears throat> how is it that people attach themselves, you know, one to another? What is it that creates attachment? What is it that creates deep relationships between people? And um, Carol was showing me a book she was reading uh, by, at least a report by a secular, actually Jewish guy. I guess he's a psychiatrist and a neurologist. And he said one of the first and most important ways that you create relationship and attachment is you eat together. You eat together. Yes. And uh, what are we doing when we're coming to the Lord's table? Yes. Even secular people realize, understand this deep biblical truth. We're, yes, and you might say deepening our attachment with the Lord. If we come in faith, we're deepening that attachment with the Lord. And we also deepen an attachment with each other. And I'll come to that in a moment. Do we not? Yes, we eat together. Yes, we are one, Paul says, because we share one loaf. And by the way, abiding, and this is, this is, the, this is a very big problem with, in, our, in, in, in Western culture. One of the biggest problems is that everything becomes individualistic. It's about me and the Lord and my abiding with him. Me and the Lord and my walking with him. But you know, Jesus, when he talks about the vine in John 15, you can see a beautiful stained glass window of a vine. Yes, he says to the disciples, he says to the disciples, you guys, you need to stay attached, right? You need to remain connected. And the connectedness is not just one person being attached to the Lord. It's all of us being attached together to the Lord. And the way that we relate and treat each other and connect with each other, yes, is important, if not essential, yes, because that's the attachment, right, that, that, um, that Jesus wants. He wants us to live and to act in a way Yes, that mirrors, that projects the divine life that the Father has with the Son and has with the Holy Spirit. That's what we're witnesses of. We're witnesses of that reality. And so, therefore, coming together, coming together does, it, it not only creates this attachment, it should create the attachment between us, right, because of the scripture, and I think it's in the litur our liturgy today, yeah? Should be. Though we are many, we are one body, for we all share in one bread. And believe me, sometimes our approach is, I'm going to get everyone to sign this doctrinal statement. And you're going to agree with me about speaking in tongues and about the rapture and about God's plan for Israel and when we can cross every T and dot every I, then we can have unity. That, my dear friends, will never happen. And for those of, who are waiting for one world religion, I have bad news for you. Human beings will never sign up for one world religion. We're too rebellious. But what, what we can be unified around 
is the Lord's table, yes, and the bread and the wine. It's a little bit like Jewish people. Jewish people have all kinds of theology, but what unifies them is the Shabbat, or what unifies them is the holidays. And that should be, you know, an important focal point, yes, of, uh, of our unity. Let me say two other things. Second, let me just say that food creates an identity. I don't have to, this is obvious, isn't it? The Italians have their food, which is the best in the world. <laughs> yes, and the Arabs have their food. It comes in second. And you know, if you've ever been to Singapore, the world's biggest Chinese restaurant, okay, <clears throat> they have all kinds of different foods, and everyone's passionate about food. And food is part of the culture, and culture is part of the food, and it gives people an identity, doesn't it? Yeah, it gives people usually a good identity. Although I know some nice, I know some nice cultures where they have terrible food. But on the whole, food identifies us, tells us who we are. And having that identity, having an identity and a strong identity in Christ is essential. I don't know if a lot of people think about it. They think I'm going to believe. They think I've got to do this thing and that thing. But the first, one of the first places where we have to start, yes, is we have to start with an identity. Yes, we have to know who we are as a people, who we belong to, who we relate to. We have to know what we do as a people. What does is, what is our group do? Yes, our group practices love, hopefully, and mercy, and tolerance. Yes, our group doesn't look at porn. We don't allow misogyny, the, the, the abuse of women. We don't allow people to carry on a vendetta or a grudge, whatever it may be. Yes, we look at marriage as something that uh, is whole, whatever. That's, what our, that's our identity. And as we've, we mentioned here before, our identity is more powerful than our theology. Because when we're tempted to sin, yes, the first thing that will happen, yes, the first thing that can happen is that, oh, that's not who I am, I don't do that. Or, oh, that's who I am, I'm going to forgive that person. Yes, if we have to think about it theologically for too long, we'll begin to justify it. Yes, we'll begin to wiggle our way out of it. But identity has to be instinctive. Yes, and so coming to the Lord's table and eating a meal, this food is giving us an identity, is it not? This food is allowing us to participate in the life and death of Jesus yes, and his resurrection and all that that means, yes, the way of the cross, you know, humility, forgiveness, yes, the need to sometimes for us to accept suffering. Yes, that gives us an identity. And that identity is reinforced, hopefully, every week, or maybe sometimes for some of us twice a week, yes. It's, tell, it's reminding us that we, yes, <clears throat> if we're eating the flesh and drinking the blood, that we're living in him, 
and that he's living in us. We belong to him. Yes, we belong to him. And of course, at the same time, it's, it's a group thing. We do it communally. We don't do it as individuals. We come together, and it creates that group identity. Yes, it creates our group identity, you know, as disciples. Again, it's not the only thing. Yes, abiding in his word. Yes, worship, meditation, all of those things are good. But many of us have this gift of the Lord's Supper and the Eucharist, and our view is way too small. Yes, it's a gift. It's an invitation, surely, that the Lord has given us. Yes, and um, it does, by the way, speak against the kind of individualistic, narcissistic, you know, tendency, uh, tendency in our culture. So, my dear friends, we, all of us, and, and I, we can say a lot more about this. In fact, just let me say that if you think all of this sounds Roman Catholic, I would like to disabuse you of that. This is classic Protestantism. This is, the, this, is, this is what the Reformation was about. This is what Luther and Calvin and Wesley and many other people, they restored the prominent place of the Lord's table to worship. And before the Reformation, uh, uh, an average person might go to communion three or four times a year. And here, the word mass in Latin. By the way, we should not be afraid of the word mass. The word mass comes from Latin, which means to be sent. We come to the Lord's table to be strengthened, to be encouraged, to be further attached so that we can go into the world and do the Lord's work, right? It's not uh, some private mystical experience. It's, uh, we, it's something that when we dismiss you, it's to go into the, to, to the world to be, um, to be a witness. And so the, um, the reformers said we should have communion every week. And it should be in a language that people understand. Yes, it should be in a language that people understand. And for, for Luther and Calvin and for, for even people, again, people like Wesley and, and many others, for most of Christian history, whether you're Protestant, Catholic, or Orthodox, yes, it's been about the presence of the Lord. Again, we don't agree with transubstantiation. And you might ask, well, how does it all work? I don't know. It's a mystery, and I don't have to figure it out. All I know is that we have to come in faith, yes, after self-examination, and being, yes, being joyful. So Jesus issues this, you might say, he issues this invitation to us. And the invitation is abide or die. Yes, believe or face death. Not simply death in the future, but death in the here and now. And this becomes a central theme in John's gospel. We, we all like to, be, to preach being born again, which is good. But after we're born again, we need to be nourished. And that new life needs to grow. And uh, it, grows, it grows when we abide. And we abide when we obey his word and obey his commandments. 
Yes, we abide when we commit ourselves to him and to who he says he is. Yes, not to guru Jesus or, or Jesus the, uh, I'm going to make you rich magician. Yes, but to who he's, he is as revealed in the scriptures. And we abide when we come to the Lord's table. Yes, again, not as some mindless ritual. Yes, but with the expectation and the assurance, yes, that we're going to meet with him. And so that's the challenge that Jesus gives us. And this passage is kind of black and white. It's not, uh, you know, well, let me think about it. Or I'm, you know, what do, you, what do we say at the Anglican school? You say at the Anglican school, we didn't want to tell a student they were failing. We would say, you're working towards. Do you still do that? You still do that. Okay. You know, at the, at the school, when a student is struggling learning math, they don't want to give them a bad grade. They just say, this student is working towards becoming more proficient in math. And sometimes we'd all like to say, well, I'm, I'm a work in progress. And it's true. We're all a work in progress. But, but, yeah, we have to make the decision to abide. Right? We have to make that decision. And it's not something we do once, oh, I decided, you know, when I was 12 to walk down the aisle. It's something that we have to do daily so that we can share, right, in that life, yes, that we have with the Lord and that we can share with each other, yes, that common life, right, of uh, having the Lord abide in us as a group, as a people, and having us as a people in a group abide in him. And my dear friends, I don't, we all have things that get in the way. We all have broken bits and bad theology and bad experiences. And uh, we need to be challenged from time to time, yes, to have the Lord bring those to light, yes, and to be able to put those things away, yes, to, to bring healing or completion or resolution, yes, so that we can, we can abide, we can have... Uh, we can get the, the most benefit, you know, out of that relationship that we have with the Lord. Yes. So let's just pray for a moment. So, Father in heaven, we, um, we all recognize that you have for us the gift of eternal life. And, Lord, we want to commit and we want to trust and we want to be confident, yes. Lord, we want to obey, and we want to come to your table, yes, with faith, with thanksgiving, with joy. Lord, we would do, many of us do want to be attached. And Lord, for those of us who fear attachment or fear relationship or even fear intimacy, with you or with each other, we pray that you'll come and bring healing. Lord, for those of us who misunderstand who you are, who can't quite fully comprehend, yes, your glory, yes, and what you want to do for each one of us, Lord, we pray for revelation. 
Lord, reveal God, Lord God, reveal your son to us in a fuller, deeper way. And Lord, we know the enemy of eternal life is sin. And Lord, for those of us who sin, who don't want to give up our sin, or don't think we can give up our sin, Lord, we pray for something more yes, than just asking for forgiveness week after week. Lord, for those of us in that tough spot, we pray for transformation. Yes, we pray that in actual reality, Lord, we can live a life of holiness that pleases you and glorifies you with other people. Father, we all have different needs, and many of us have uh, these hindrances. We pray that you'll minister to each one of us and remove every roadblock. And Lord, convict us of every sin. And we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.